Hello and welcome to PW's FaithCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors who write about inspiration, spirituality, and religion. I'm Emma Winner, Religion News Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Ken Weitzma and AJ Swoboda, whose book, Redeeming How We Talk, is being published by Moody Press, the sponsor of today's FaithCast. Thank you so much for joining us, Ken and AJ, and I'd like for each of you to introduce yourselves just so that the reader can differentiate your voices, and um, maybe you could tell us how you got involved with the book one at a time. Let's start with you, AJ. Yeah, sure. AJ Swoboda, I live uh, here in Portland, Oregon, and um, I have the privilege of giving leadership to a church here in Portland called Theophilus, and um, a kind of interesting life. I, I, I both pastor, but I as well uh, do some teaching. I lead a doctor of ministry program at Fuller Seminary on the Holy Spirit and the life of uh, leadership. And then I teach at a number of other universities. And uh, we have uh, three chickens and uh, a really awesome neighborhood. Oh, nice. And then the the genesis for this book, did you initiate or? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think Ken, when, when he introduces himself, um, may, may get to get credit for the, the sort of genesis of this book. But really, uh, my contribution to the, this project is that, um, you know, I, I have just uh, experienced and sensed uh, over the last uh, few years that uh, Christians, uh, generally speaking, um, have not given the attention to um, the role that words play in this world as we should. And for a people who were uh, believe that God created the world with words, we, we haven't been as attentive to words as, as God has. And so my contribution is really a deep passion for helping people of faith and, and people uh, who wouldn't consider themselves Christians learn to speak uh, and talk more generously and kindly. Okay, great. And what about you, Ken? Um, a little bit about yourself and the idea for this book. Sure. Thanks, Emma. Uh, my name is Ken Weitzma, and I'm a pastor in the Beaverton area, uh, recently relocated from Bend, Oregon, and pastor a church called Village, which is a multicultural community in Christ. And I have four daughters. The oldest is now driving. And just uh, was excited about this project, doing it in dialogue with AJ, just simply because if we're talking about uh, conversation and the role of words, there's probably no better way than to, to get two perspectives coming at it. Uh, but if, if life is about relationships, if God has made it a relational uh, universe, then that relationship usually runs on the rails of communication. And so we'd, we'd be uh, in a good position to reflect on words, uh, conversation, communication, and how that shapes our relationships. So uh, I don't know that I'm an expert, but certainly um, wanted to come to this and, and reflect on the role of conversation in our lives, in our churches, in our homes. And then in the book, uh, Facebook is specifically mentioned, especially its curated content and its role in the divisive politics of today. What role would you say the 2016 presidential election played in the shaping of the book? Yeah, uh, this is AJ, and I'll chime in for just a second. Um, well, yeah, big component of this of this book uh, really does seek to articulate the idea that uh, with all the social media that we have, we've actually become less social. Um, so it's essentially become uh, media, and and it has not helped in essence our ability to communicate with one another. 
Uh, I remember just a few, uh, maybe it was six months ago or nine months ago, uh, there was this piece that had been written. I believe it was in the Atlantic, but basically the the story was um, that essentially those that voted for Hillary Clinton, the majority of them didn't know one person who voted for, for Donald Trump. And the majority of people who voted for Donald Trump didn't know anybody who voted for Hillary. And there was this big component of, 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 uh, people who literally had no conversation with those on the other side. And so for, for a community and a culture that claims to be as inclusive as we are, we've done a really good job of sanitizing our life from people that are different. And at the end of the day, uh, we believe, uh, that a big component of that, that rift and that chasm has been that we rely on a disembodied faceless communication rather than the old school medium of just sitting down and having a conversation with somebody. And so we seek to redeem that in this book. Perfect. Um, is there anything you'd like to add, Ken? Yeah. Social media shows up in this book, redeeming how we talk, not as the, the focal point. We're not here to, to try and tell people what to do uh, with their lives. We're, we're trying to help them understand how different things are affecting them uh, and shaping them and how those things either help or hurt uh, their ability to communicate and be in relationship. And I, I do think that we, we come to some conclusions about the need for silence or stepping back uh, or even um, using words to fix problems that our words have created and, and to try to uh, reflect on that. So it's not about social media, but certainly social media today plays a large part in our, our conversations or just our interactions. And so it gets a little bit of attention in some of the chapters. And so you mentioned that you talk about social media in the book and it has its pros and cons when it comes to communication, but you both go a step further and you talk about the impact of texting and the impact it can have on friendships and relationships. Can you discuss a little bit why such a thing as texting can be harmful? Yeah, well, we, I had this experience uh, of, uh, as you know, as I have a unique vantage point, I know Ken does as well, we have a unique vantage point uh, at looking at the nature of uh, human community through the lens of a church. I mean, we, I, I read this one pastor who said at the end of the day, uh, if you were to look at what a pastor is, I mean, they're, they're um, you know, a big part of their life is just uh, being a sociologist. You know, we, we study relationships and we study the way people interact with each other. And I began to notice, uh, you know, when, when you deal with community, uh, as as much as we do, that uh, you know there are rifts in relationships, and there are things that fall apart, and and reconciliation is needed and whatnot. And I just began to notice years ago that, uh, like, the majority of the kinds of breakdowns in relationships that were taking place in a church all began with the same source, and that was the, I can't tell you the number of times a relationship has fallen apart over text. And how it all begins with uh, a misunderstanding, a word that was used that was inappropriate, somebody not responding, a relationship because somebody didn't respond and the assumption, what, why, is there, is there something wrong with us or whatnot? And I, I would argue, and I, I believe Ken would say that, that he agrees, that really there, there's a great deal of damage that is done to the way we've been created to relate when it is done primarily in disembodied, faceless means. Again, uh, texting is an important part for most of our lives, and we all do it with great regularity. But I do grow concerned and worried that that medium 
is removing us from what we call in the book, the incarnational side of life. And that is that when God came to the world in the person of Jesus, God came in human flesh. God did not send a text. God did not send a message. God sent a person. Mm -hmm. And so the book not only covers how Christians should be able to communicate with others, but even in some cases, what they should be talking about. Um, Why did you both decide to include the subject of social justice? I think uh, our words are are living things. They shape, they have power in this world. And all of this creation, I think God's involvement in it is, is aimed at a reconciliation of all things. And we have brokenness in creation. We have brokenness in society, brokenness in our relationships. Uh, and somehow trying to use our words um, to, uh, to speak to those things, to bring change, to, to put things back into a place of shalom or how they ought to be. Uh, and so I think our voices are in, incredibly important that way. And just um, pointing people in the direction of how to use their energy with regard to what they're thinking about and then what they're, what they're speaking on. And you mentioned already, Ken, you mentioned silence. Someone who is approaching this book and sees in the subtitle that it's about growth and relationships and communication, they might be surprised that you guys emphasize the importance of silence when it comes to communicating well. Can you talk about um, what role silence plays in, in being able to speak your mind and speak well to others? Yeah, I'll tackle that question for, for a moment. Um, I, uh, I tell the story in, in the book, but a few years ago, I uh, had an opportunity to meet uh, a gentleman who was in the, um, he was in the Navy for something like 30 years. He was a, uh, a Navy admiral uh, who served in the military for uh, something like 30 years. And when you compare World War II and Vietnam uh, and the veterans who came back from those two wars, it's a very different experience for both from uh, the men who came back and women who came back from World War II, um, generally speaking, when they came back, this our country was in euphoria, in joy. I mean, such a such an exciting time that when the when they came back, there's literally a generation that was created from the happiness that we call the baby boomers. Um, and you know, abuse rates were quite low after uh, World War II. PTSD, at least, it wasn't it wasn't uh, understood in the same way, but very low PTSD rates. Drug abuse was very low. And of course, when Vietnam ended, it was a very different story. Uh, abuse rates were skyrocketing. Uh, abuse, PTSD, and the culture, you know, American culture, largely speaking, was just depressed after World after Vietnam. And my friend was explaining to me that when you compare these two wars, what was different? And he he said to me that they have one theory, and that is that after Vietnam, of course, men and women who fought in the war and were present in the Vietnam arena, literally got on planes and flew back to their hometowns and were usually from battlefield to home within two days. Whereas in World War II, it's a very different story. Men didn't get on planes and then come home. Uh, They got on boats. In many cases, they were on boats for something like a month or two months to get home. And he argued that literally that time to simply be on a boat, what do you do when you're on a boat with your fellow brothers and uh, people that you fought with is that you just process and you, you sit in silence and you cry and you weep. And uh, that, that simple opportunity to just have solitude and stop literally gave a sense of joy in, that is incomparable. And I think that's a metaphor for a culture. We literally have no solitude and silence in our lives. And because of it, we bear one pain from one moment to the next, and we just pass it along. Uh, it just becomes almost a disease that we pass along because we don't have any time to stop and process anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And then back to communicating in the digital age and, and all the chaos and all the noise in the world, our relationships with loved ones, even the people we live with, are suffering. Um, you write in the book, and what is one way that readers or all of us can reconnect to those closest to us, even in the midst of Instagram and television and all the distractions? Yeah, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot with my daughters and just realizing that sometimes I can rush right into time spent with them and then later that night be lamenting uh, that we didn't have as deep of a conversation as I would have liked. And, and I think I used to put the blame on, on, you know, one or whoever, whichever of my daughters I was speaking to that they didn't share as deeply as I wanted. They didn't share their fears. They didn't share their hopes or dreams. They, they just kind of, uh, jumped into di- uh, dinner and, and wanted dessert. And, and then that was kind of the end of it. And I began to realize that it was me rushing into those meetings, not preparing uh, ahead of time to spend time with my daughters, coming up with questions to ask them about their favorite memory, um, the time uh, that that they felt most loved, uh, who they enjoy spending time with the most. If they could go anywhere in the world, you know, based on the things they've seen, where would it be? that it was it was not coming into those meetings with enough of me to give that was really a big part of that. And so I think having margin is something that we need to be aiming toward it, or at least intentionality and to realize that we have to plan for relational time, not just expect it to happen. And I think there's a, a little bit there as well. I, I once was taught by a mentor in my 20s that quality time is, is usually something that just emerges out of quantity time. And so making space uh, for those relationships to happen and, and for those moments to come that you can't even predict, but they become the stuff of life, uh, I think is, is really important. So it's a true north. And that's what we're trying, I think, in the book to do is, is help uh, put a little bit of a compass there so that we can all uh, be trying to lean into this stuff. Um, not that we're we're going to get it perfect. Certainly not in the short run, um, but that we we have just a, a a guidebook. And AJ, this this question can be for you if you'd like. Um, in addition to reconnecting with the people closest to us in our lives, you guys address others. You know, people that we that we don't encounter on a regular basis. You write. We're losing our ability to talk to or understand one another. We're losing our ability to be in relationship with people whose viewpoints differ from our own. And you mentioned this earlier. Um, what is one way that readers can engage with different cultures and viewpoints in order to access more diverse voices? Yeah, boy, what a what a phenomenal question. Um, I, I was uh, recently on a trip uh, through uh, Texas, and I was in uh, the city of Abilene, uh, at Abilene Christian University, there's a professor there by the name of Richard Beck, who's a, a psychologist, and he um, kind of describes himself as a post-progressive Christian who um, is a follower of Jesus, but you know has quite a quite a critique of what he sees is uh, kind of a mark of progressive culture. And he was explaining to me the moment that he began to kind of critique the the progressive way of life, and and it was that he was having these uh, he was. Uh, setting the table for these dinners with uh, individuals who live on the street. And it was a, essentially a, a meal for um, the disenfranchised and the marginalized in our, in our culture. And uh, he began to see that there was a real problem because uh, his progressive friends would not come and eat the meal. And the reason they wouldn't come and eat the meal was because all the food 
uh, was filled with sugar and was not genetically, it was all genetically modified food. And he had this moment, this epiphany that, um, uh, that everybody has a kind of holiness code that keeps them from encountering the other. Um, and he said for him, seeing sort of through the progressive mindset, this holiness of what we eat, keeping you from, uh, from the other, it's the same thing that conservatives struggle with. And that is that uh, conservatives often in the circles that I, I, I swim in uh, will not relate to people who vote on the other side of the aisle or have uh, different understandings of uh, regarding sexuality or different understandings regarding politics or, uh, or religion is that we often will welcome to the degree that we agree. Uh, and, and that creates a, a context where essentially we create a bubble for ourselves that sanitizes our lives from people that are different. And we argue in this book that you cannot fully encounter life as God intended it to be without incorporating people in your life that fundamentally differ with who you are. I make the case in the book that we do not go to the other to bring God. We actually go to the other in order to find God, that it is in loving the person that is fundamentally different that we actually encounter God uh, himself. Wow, yeah. And so my last question, I'd, I'd like you both to to take a swing at it if, if you'd like is um, what is the most important thing that you hope readers will take away from the book? I, I would just pull a thread from what AJ was saying that we, we are finding ourselves dangerously in echo chambers of our own making lately. And social media plays into that because there are algorithms that, that are at work to basically put more and more of the content in the types of people in front of us that we tend to like or already agree with or interact with. And so over time, a lot of these uh, platforms are leading us to um, the most extreme version of ourselves. And, and, and it happens slowly and over time and we don't really realize it. Um, but we find ourselves, as AJ said, in a bubble or in an echo chamber and that somehow that's a breakdown in, uh, I think, the ability to have unity and the ability to understand others and understanding or empathizing with others is the necessary component to being able to love others. And so in the end, I think this is an important conversation just um, to bring us back to a, a better example or, or a, hopefully thinking through a, a better way of being human. Mm-hmm. And, and what about you, AJ? Yeah, boy, that was that was poignant. And I, I'm not sure if I have a whole lot to add to it. Um, I guess uh, at the end of the day, um, I would want any reader who reads this book to uh, begin to see through our thin veil of self-congratulatory inclusiveness, where we think that we're actually being inclusive, when in reality, we are including people that we uh, agree with. And our sense of inclusivity is not inclusivity. Uh, it's pharisaical self-centeredness. We include the people that, um, that we agree with. Uh, there's the, I love Anne Lamott's line, you know that you've created God in your own image when God hates everybody that you hate. And at the end of the day, we have done a marvelous job of being inclusive to the people that we would naturally like. And we believe that Jesus had a much bigger vision where we actually could incorporate in our lives people who fundamentally are different than ourselves. And is that what you would say surprised you the most about the writing of this book is that that is the truth and that that is the state of affairs that we live in today? Or is there something else that, that really stuck out in your mind while researching the book? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, the process of writing a book is a, with another person is a terrifying 
uh, reality. And the reason is, is the final product is not the voice of one person. It's the voice of two people and that we could not arrive at a conclusion without needing each other. Um, you know, there are aspects of this book that, uh, that came about by the conversation. I mean, we did the, the book is, is sort of a, a test ground for what we were trying to do. And, you know, there were times that Ken and I disagreed and we struggled and we wrestled and we didn't like each other and we pushed and we pulled. And well, I can say this is even in the process of con conversing and writing this book, I am a different human being because of it. And my hope would be that anybody that seeks to read this um, would see that that's the way we're supposed to live our life. Wow. Yeah. Great. And, and you can. Books are an interesting thing in that they force you to slow down and you go over the same content sometimes dozens of times and you learn to nuance it better. I think really helped us deepen our conviction that uh, that the subtitle of this book is is appropriate, that that words or conversation or communication is something that we often look at as an abstract thing and maybe look past it. Uh, but in reality, those things have power uh, and they're uh, they're happening all the time between people, uh, either in a healthy way or unhealthy ways. And that they really do have the power to shape our lives and, and to change our relationships. And so uh, we really came to this conviction that there's something worthwhile, incredibly worthwhile in, in learning to redeem how we talk just a little bit. Well, that's great. And um, Ken and AJ, thank you so much for joining us. And also thank you to the audience for listening and join us for the next FaithCast. <laughs>